It's 11 minutes before the hour. You're listening to Raven Radio, KCAW Sitka. Today is Friday, March 4th, 2022. I'm Erin Fulton with Raven News. The new CDC community standards that went into effect this week had ripple effects throughout Sitka. Schools and businesses took the new guidance into account and many shed their masks. When the Unified Command met on March 2nd, Fire Chief Craig Warren explained the metrics for the new model, which weighs Sitka's hospitalization rate more heavily than new cases. Hopefully a better model. Uh, we did see a little bit of a bump here in the last couple of days from uh, uh, new cases. Uh, not overly high, just a little bump. Uh Kind of to be expected in my mind because there are so many at-home testing options. Even with the bump in cases, Sitka's risk level is considered medium. The shift allowed the city's mask mandate to go dormant. Sitka School District Superintendent Frank Hauser said that since the school district went mask optional on March 1st, some students and staff are still opting to mask in the building. According to the CDC, people who wear high-quality masks are well-protected, even if others around them are not masking. Right now, principals estimated that approximately 10 to 20 percent, depending on the school, are opting to continue wearing masks. As of March 1st, there were four coronavirus cases associated with the Sitka School District. Mount Edgecombe Superintendent Janelle Vanoss said cases at the state-run boarding school have been dropping, too. I'm just real pleased to share that we are on a downward trend here on campus. Uh, right after the, you know, early February, we had had kind of a on-campus spike upwards, and um, we we're a little bit concerned, but as quickly as it spiked upwards, it spiked back downwards. So we are back to um, quite low numbers on campus. Venos said if they continued to have low numbers, they would shift to a mask-optional policy by mid-March. A pair of documentary filmmakers is hard at work examining the implications of the rapid growth in cruise tourism projected for Sitka. Elements of their film, Cruise Boom, are already available to watch online, and many viewers may be surprised to learn that, while the dramatic increase in cruise passengers represents a significant bonanza for the town, there's also significant worry about the community's future. KCAW's Robert Woolsey reports. Sitka is expected to see upwards of a half a million cruise passengers in the 2022 season. Before this, the most ever in one summer was 280,000, and many remember the congested intersections, overflowing sidewalks, and the inability to run the simplest errands downtown during peak hours. And if you're a business owner, how do you prepare for the surge, especially when, as COVID has shown us, there's no guarantee that the big numbers will materialize. It's exciting and it's scary at the same time. Looking forward to next year. This is Linda Anderson, one of many downtown Sitka merchants who outlasted the slowdown of the pandemic, only to be faced with an altogether different problem, the rebound. Every business in town is looking for people. It's not just little clerk jobs. It's, there's a lot of jobs out there that aren't filled now. Filmmakers Ellen Frankenstein and Atman Mehta explore this idea in the first short release in their documentary film, Cruise Boom. Mehta says that the rapid expansion of cruise tourism puts Sitka into its own category. I think while there are sort of broader implications, I mean, it's also worth saying that I think Sitka is unique in a way. 
uh, is because the the kind of rise in Sitka is going to be much quicker than, mm. than other places. Their short film Preparation is one of two so far that Meta and Frankenstein have offered online. The other is called Benefits and Impacts. Frankenstein is the CEO of Sitka-based Art Change, Inc., which is producing Cruise Boom. In addition to covering Main Street, they've been to municipal planning meetings, toured Sitka's cruise facility, and visited some of the popular nonprofit venues for cruise tourism in Sitka. Frankenstein feels that Sitkins in the front lines are rising to the challenge. It's been really amazing to go behind the scenes. We Both of us have no experience in the tourism world, and there's a lot of thinking going on, a lot of hard work, and a lot of collaboration that's really impressive. There is a lot of uncertainty in both short films, however, and a lot of worry. This is a clip of Lisa Bush, the director of the Sitka Sound Science Center, which runs a popular aquarium in Hatchery. I'm worried about how we're going to get this all done in time. And the worst case scenario is really like we're not ready. And so the experience is not good. Best case scenario is this remains a wonderful visitor destination and a great community to live in. Maida believes the anxiety felt by Bush and others is justified based on what has happened elsewhere in the world where cruising has shouldered its way in. What's often happened in other cruise destinations is, you know, that when when there, there is such a rise in tourism is that, you know, generic stores selling jewelry and trinkets, you know, which are often owned by either cruise companies or other very uh, powerful and rich institutions, uh, they tend to show up and down and price out local businesses and local residents. They drive rents up and property prices up. Uh, and I think to ensure that it sort of doesn't, the flavor of town doesn't change, but also that it doesn't, Sitka doesn't become sort of a hyper seasonal economy in which most of the businesses uh, cater only to tourists. I think it's going to be important for town to avoid that. Meta cautions that the COVID pandemic demonstrated how volatile the cruise industry is and that becoming too dependent on the cruise sector could prove devastating if companies chose to one day alter their routes and bypass Sitka altogether. The producers say that they'll be filming Cruise Boom throughout the summer in Sitka with the premiere screening sometime in the late fall. Reporting in Sitka, I'm Robert Woolsey. You can find a link to Art Change, Inc., where you can watch the first two short features of the documentary Cruise Boom on our website, kcaw.org. The U.S. Forest Service is updating its management plan for fighting invasive plants on 3.7 million acres in southeast Alaska. The draft plan is nearing the end of its public review process, and the federal agency hopes to have it ready for the spring season. KFSK's Angela Denning reports from Petersburg. National forests often deal with hundreds, if not thousands, of different invasive plant species that compete with the indigenous landscape. But it's different on the rainforest in southeast Alaska. We're really lucky compared to the rest of the United States. We're in a much different position here, which is really great um, to make some headway. Carrie Case is with the Forest Service in Petersburg. She says most of the forest's nearly 17 million acres remains indigenous. Case is the project leader for updating the agency's 2013 invasive management plan for the Petersburg and Wrangell Ranger districts. 89 invasive plant species have been identified there, but only a handful are considered a real threat for ecological reasons, namely knotweed, hawkweed, and reed canary grass. The new Forest Service plan would allow workers more options, like expanding how herbicides can be sprayed. Joni Johnson is a botanist with the Petersburg Ranger District. They're not big changes necessarily. They're the same chemicals, but it provides more tools. 
The proposal would eliminate annual treatment limits and allow treatments below the high water mark or on plants rooted in the water. Take reed canary grass, for example. It's found in many places on the national forest, but botanists are mainly concerned about controlling it along riparian areas or the banks of waterways like the Stikine River. It can, you know, basically form these dense thickets and it can outcompete native plants. Nothing else will grow there. The root bed of reed canary grass can even change the physical processes in certain areas. You know, you don't see erosion occurring where you would no- normally see erosion occurring and so it changes the meandering of the stream. The Forest Service uses herbicides to combat the grass, which Johnson says is 60 to 80 percent effective. Spraying happens by hand, with a worker wearing a backpack of the chemicals and holding a wand. However, the management plan from 2013 only allows for spot spraying a part of one plant at a time. The proposed update would allow workers to continuously spray multiple plants in some situations. Again, carry case. Instead of just spraying and stopping and spraying and stopping in small areas, you can, if you have a continuous coverage, you can just kind of, you can keep applying, um, which we weren't able to do before. And there are places where it's much more effective for us to be able to have that option. Every treatment must be planned out because it can't be done in the rain, which in a rainforest is rare. Johnson says she can sometimes count on her hands the number of opportunities she has to use the herbicides in a year. Still, some environmental groups and several individuals have opposed the use of herbicides because of health concerns for native plants and animals, as well as humans. The season for invasive plant field work runs from late May to early October, depending on the species. Knotweed is another invasive plant of great concern. It looks like a nice hedge bush with lots of green leaves and bamboo-like stalks. It's growing in multiple places in Petersburg and other southeast towns. But it outcompetes almost everything, even the hardy salmonberry bush, because of its aggressive rhizome root system. Johnson says it's very, very hard to kill. You don't want to dig it up because it just stimulates growth, and it's a bugger. Instead, you can suppress knotweed with herbicides and smothering it with tarps. Because it grows mostly in urban areas, the Forest Service's new plan would allow working on non-forestry lands with other partners like tribal groups. The federal plan won't be finalized until at least mid-May, after public objection and response periods have ended. In Petersburg, I'm Angela Denning. Taking a look at the community calendar... The deadline to enter Sitka Local Food Network's Sitka Food Business Innovation Contest is 5 p.m. on Friday, March 18th. The entry fee is $25. For the entry form, you can follow a link on the community calendar posting. I'm Erin Fulton, and this has been Raven News. (laughs) 